How you doing? Welcome to Frank Warren's Heavyweight Podcast. I'm Adam Catterall, and once again, it is a pleasure to be in your company. If this is the first time you've ever come across us, you can subscribe via iTunes or via Aircast or via your usual podcast subscriber. You're just looking out for Frank Warren Heavyweight Podcast. Hit the button, and uh, there's already five episodes waiting for you. This is episode number six. Now, with everything going on in the world, we thought we'd take full advantage of being able to speak to people in remote locations. Uh, this podcast... One third of it was recorded in my house, one third of it was recorded in Frank Warren's house, and one third of it was recorded in a golf club in Los Angeles with the one and only Mr. Vinnie Jones. Well, Frank, you've done it once again. You've obviously brought us another heavyweight guest for the Heavyweight Podcast. I know we're in remote locations. I'm up north, you're down south. Uh, but our guest today is actually over in the United States, over uh, over the Atlantic in Los Angeles, the one and only Mr. Vinnie Jones. How are you, sir? You good? Good, lads. Yeah, good morning. Frank, talk to me about um, how you uh, first came across uh, Mr. Jones, because I've seen him at quite a lot of your boxing shows down the years. Well, he's been to quite a few of the shows. In fact, he was at Tyson's last fight when he beat Wilder in... Uh, Vegas, but unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to speak to him because it was like a madhouse there on the uh, on the evening. Obviously, we had a good win, but, but I didn't get a chance for him. But um, I think that besides seeing Vinny play football, which he was <laughs> he was a great exponent of, um, I think it's when he was the sort of initial thing was in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels when he was in that film, and uh, my my relation of Lenny McLean was in the same uh, film, and obviously they the, the, the movie was um, dedicated to him at the end by Guy Ritchie. So that was really around the first time I sort of, got, you know, met him. Vinny, what's your uh, association with the boxing world? Because I've seen you, like I said, at many, many shows. Did you ever, before you turn your hand to, to football as a kid, did you ever get in the gym and do a bit? Yeah, I was. I don't know if Frank would remember, lad. Um, I used to box over at uh, Boreham Wood, and there was a lad called Dave Williams, the fireman, Dave Williams. Do you remember him? I do remember him. Bloody hell. That's, that's going back a few years. Yeah, he was the top man at our gym at the time. Um, I think he was ABAs and all that he went for. But great lad. Yeah, the fighting fireman. God, that's going back a, a long time ago. Yeah, a long, long time ago. It was probably, so tell me, probably yeah, yeah. 40 years ago, Frank. I oh, know, it's scary. Isn't it? Where did it all go? Where did all it go? Why did you get into the football and not the boxing? Well, my old man, his best friend... He had a load of boys and they were all boxers. So I wanted to box. So I went to Borenwood and boxed with them there. But, you know, I was brought up with football. You know, I had a football in my hand and the field was a, literally across the street from us. And we used to play as late as we could in the street lamps, you know, from an early age, you know, like five, six, seven years old. And then I moved yeah. over to Watford at seven and then um, just carried on playing football, really, and sort of went away from the boxing as much but I, I've always had a passion for it so I've always been in the family my old man was a great supporter of boxing my stepdad now lives for it he's 83 now and his favourite boxer is Oscar De La Hoya who's a good mate of mine he's at the golf club with us and the other week I was with the father-in-law going up the fairway and, he, and Oscar waved he said alright Vin and my father-in-law nearly had a heart attack he said he's always been my favourite so I drove over and I said Oscar with my father and Lord Lou, and uh, they had a good chat, and it was great to see an 83-year-old's face turn into like a six-year-old's face in the candy store, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's terrific. I thought that was thrilled into death. 
you, you, you get too much of the fights out there with him. Yeah, well, he does Showtime down here. I'm, a, I, I'm speaking from Palm Springs at the moment, and there's a casino down here called Fantasy Springs. He puts a lot of boxing on there, Frank. So we go, we go to watch them. There are a lot of Mexican lads he's got. But, you know, we go up to Vegas and we watch his fights up there. Oscar looks after us. I'm a member of the golf club here in Palm Springs with him and the one up in L.A. called Lakeside. But, yeah, I'm very, very friendly with Oscar. Great lad. Was a fantastic fighter. I remember once watching, I think it was around about 99-2000, where I was sitting with Robert Duval and John Voight, of all people, I mean, you find yourself in some ridiculous situations, but I was sitting with them around Andy Garcia's house watching Oscar get beat up by somebody. I can't remember who it was. He got a right good hiding by somebody. And then years later, I actually became friendly with Oscar. It was unbelievable. He was a great actor. Well, they're all great actors. Everyone you mentioned there, but I love Robert Duval. He was in one of my favourite films called The Great Santini. I don't know if you ever see it. It was a brilliant film. And he was also, <laughs> in one of his first appearances, I remember seeing him in To Kill a Mockingbird. He played Boo Radley. Great actor. So tell me, what about when you're with a crazy gang? What was it like? Do you see catch up with them still? Do you think we'll ever see the likes of them again? Well, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm very good mates of Wisey. You know, I was Wisey's best man at his wedding, so we're still close. Um, we go and watch Watford or whatever together when I'm over. But I don't know. I think, to be honest, I think Leicester, when they won the Premier League, they played very similar. I don't know whether whether it was the manager looked at the old videos. I mean, I, I think I can put that down to Nigel Pearson a bit, really, because he put that team together and then they went on to win the league. But I wonder if Pearson ever looked at the old Wimbledon videos because we upset them all the time. We upset them. First year Ferguson took over there, Frank. We done the double over Man United. I scored at Plough Lane, and why is he scored at Old Trafford? You know, we we were a force to be reckoned with, and because of all the shenanigans that went on, people forgot that we could actually play, and we had about eight internationals in the team. I remember it was a good friend of mine, Sam Herman. I loved Sam. He was a, I don't know if you got him, but I had good times with him. But that was good. They were good days for you guys, weren't they? It was a good day for him. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, Sam epitomised the club. You know, I mean, if he was in, if he was in trouble and stuff like that with the press or whatever. I mean, many a time, Frank, he can't, he was knocking on my door at six o'clock in the morning. You know, before training, and he'd sit or we'd go for a walk. He said, "Look, Jonesy, you got to handle it like this." You know, then I'd go into training and he'd disappear. He wasn't, you know, all up front like. But he would come and put his arm around us, which people didn't know, you know. And he supported us. And he said, look, you know, you've done wrong. You put your hands up and we'll support you. And that's the trust that you build up. But the, what you find later on in life, other people want you to trust them. And you trust them because that's all you know. That's how you've been brought up under Dave Bassett and Sam Hamam. And then other people kick you straight in the bollocks. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. but he, was, he was a bloke, though, wasn't he? He was, a, he was like one of the guys, Sam. When I, used to go, I, I used to go out and have, uh, used to have a few lunches together. And I got on really well with him. He was a lovely man, he was. Yeah, and he would, you know, we, we played Blackburn and it was freezing cold up there. And Sam used to go in the morning with the kit man in the coach. And they used to put the kit out, you know, two, three, four hours before the game and then come back to the hotel. Well, Sam decided to turn the cold water tap on, go into the Blackburn dressing room and threw all their kit in the bath, of which, and then of which came to the ground with us on the coach and go, oh, Jonesy, what have you done? 
And I got all the shit for it, and I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. And he'd do things oh, like that, you know. He wanted to keep it going, and he knew that, you know, this larger-than-life character of the crazy gang would kind of give us a head start when we went to away games or if, if teams came to Plough Lane or came to Sellers Park, you know. When you were younger, you had, obviously, that reputation of being a hard man on the pitch. Has that always been the case? Because people kind of forget that you could play a bit. 184 games in the Premier League, captain in your country and all that type of thing. But everybody, when they speak of Vinnie Jones, the footballer, always remembers the three-second booking or, you know, uh, the tackles that you used to put in. Yeah, that three-second booking was was a, was was a bit late, really. Although they say it was early. It was a, li- it was a little bit late. I must even... I'll say that one myself, really. I'll take that one on the chin. But, yeah, no, I mean, there was a story behind that. You know, that was my old team. I just left them, Sheffield United, so I wanted... To, I knew how yeah. to rattle them up, so I went in and smashed a couple of them on the, on the kick-off. But um, we used to have a great crack, you know, and it, we'd go to the boxing. You know, I followed... You know, a very good friend of mine, you know like family, if you like, is Steve Collins. He literally texted me yesterday, Steve, yeah. um, and the family, and, and Roddy Collins, obviously. Frank knows all the boys, Roddy Collins, and now Pascal. Yeah. Is, they're doing well in the gym out in Ireland. They've got a good gym going in the boxing. It didn't sort of matter where we went, but we went as kind of a, a gang, you know, uh, uh, the crazy gang, and we sort of kept it going on and off the pitch. Talk to me about that famous picture with Gaza, which is obviously an iconic moment now. But can you remember it at the time? Yeah, that was that was the season we won the FA Cup. I mean, um, I was suspended for the game away at Newcastle, but I went in on the Monday morning, and all the lads were raving about this young lad. And he was, you know, people get carried away. They still think Gaza's like ten or twenty years younger than me. He's not. He's three or four years younger than me. We were we were roughly the same age. You know what I mean? I mean, I think I was. 21 and he was 18 something like that but anyway they came down in the league before the cup game and I'd heard all about him and this wonder kid and everything and I was told the man-to-man marking by Don Howe now Don Howe was old school you know he he fine-tuned us you know to the way the Arsenal you know you know used to defend and things like that because I saw Tony Adams and the boys and they said has he got you doing the offsides and all that and we're like yeah and it was actually I don't know if you remember Frank that volley I scored at Highbury, live on Sky, you probably do, 1-0. Unfortunately, I've just missed it. I've just turned my head and just missed it as it went in. No, the cut down the good <laughs> Well, you could have made a cup of tea because it was about 45 yards volley through the laces. But it is <laughs> now, Frank. It is now. It, was, it ended up about 16-yard volley. But anyway, Don Howe told us how to, how to beat that offside trap at Arsenal, and, we, and it worked unbelievably. And I saw old Seaman afterwards in the bar, and he went, oh, you lucky bugger, you've never hit one like that. I said, shut up, Spunky. I hit him every day like that in training, son. <laughs> but no, getting back to the Gaza thing, and then, you know, they, Don Howe wanted me to man-to-man mark him. And I got the ump with it in training. But anyway, I went out and then we were jostling for position. And one of my my old mates, who was the manager, when I was under 10s or under 12s up at Bedmond in Watford, always told me if they get too close, just reach behind them and grab them by the nuts. So for some <laughs> unforeseen reason. Very technical. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell yeah. you, what, a, rugby, a rugby player 
he's just been banned for doing the same thing in rugby. Yeah, Joe Marler, wasn't it? Joe Marler, Frank, yeah. That's it. It's all changed. The world's changed, really. Well, it proves that it has. You talk about how the world's changed. When I did it, everybody was like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. And it's the funniest picture, and it's the most iconic football picture of all time, bar one or two, maybe. And now yeah. the guy does it in rugby or something like that, you know, and, and they're on about banning them and everything. It's absolutely ridiculous. Pierce said the world's gone nuts. It has, yeah. And I had Gaza by him, so don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you know what I tell you something about things happening like that in and out of the ring and off the thing? I was ringside, Frank, the night Tyson bit Holyfield's ear off. Oh, yeah, that's... My thing about that, he did that. I think he did Because if you remember that fight, everyone who Mike Tyson fought, he beat probably 90% of them before they got in the ring. He was like menacing and yeah. he, he, he outdone them. He got in their heads. And a lot of them were like trapped rabbits in headlights. But Holyfield was a true, true warrior. And he couldn't get into it. He couldn't get under his skin. And in that fight, if you remember, Holyfield actually kept, kept putting the nut on him. He kept butting him. And he didn't like it. He kept moaning to the referee. And in the end, he bit his ear as we see, and I think that was his way because he was losing the fight and Holyfield was getting the much better in him. Remember, Tyson was going into that fight, was a big favourite. I think he did that to get thrown out of the ring rather than get beat on merit. That's why I think he did that. Well, he, I mean, I don't know if people know, but he actually done it twice because I see him try and do it the That's first right. time and I yeah. said to my mate, he's trying to bet his ear because I know about the nutting. He, he did, he kept throwing his head into him. And then when he'd done it the, first, the, the second time, it was just absolutely unbelievable. Um, and I remember, do you remember the little referee? I can't remember his name. Mills Lane. Mills Lane, yeah. So after yeah. the fight, he was doing interviews and me and my mate went up and got his autograph. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> I, I can remember we were sitting just, we were, we were about 30 foot to the right and we're ty- they were taking Tyson off. Someone said something to him. He polled in. And, they, and this geezer threw a milkshake at Tyson. Do you remember that, Frank? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we were walking out, and there was all people. I can all remember Tiger Woods was about six foot in front of me, right? And we were walking out, and it was just mayhem. And, and you, you didn't even walk. There were so many people getting through. You kind of glided through. And all of a sudden, this nutter jumped up on a poker table with a gun and went bang, bang, bang. And I That's ended up right. halfway up Tiger Woods' backside. <laughs> Do you remember that, Frank? <laughs> could have been worse. You could have grabbed his nut. <laughs> oh, that, wasn't, that, that, that was my first hole in one. <laughs> in the MGM. Yeah. Yeah. Not pop black, pop brown. <laughs> first hole in one playing with Tiger Woods. <laughs> Going back to the boxing, I mean, I can't remember how many times we used to come. Every time Tyson was fighting or any of the big heavyweight fights, we used to fly over to all the fights. I used to come over. We used to come on like a Thursday or Friday, like the lads all do now. You know, it's great. It was great to see him the other week with Tyson Fury, all the lads over. And it just reminded me of my old days, you know, and, and going to New York, you know, with Lennox Lewis. A lot of people don't know yeah. this, but I actually, when, when Lennox retired, I put him in his first movie. Really? In a movie called Johnny Was, and it was an Irish IRA movie, and he played a Rasta, a big Rastafarian in, in Batsy. Wow. 
we went to watch him fight, um, world title fight. We was at Madison Square Gardens and we got there a bit late and I was with the old man and I had, I had a ticket down the front and the old man was at the back. So I said to him, don't worry, stick with me and we'll, we'll steam down the front, you know, and jib in. Anyway, we, we get there and it's pretty late and it was absolutely full of English supporters that night. And we go to go down and we're trying, we get sort of halfway down and we're showing the geezer my ticket and we're trying to blag it. And with that, some England supporters saw me and then they started singing Vinny, Vinny. And before you knew it, Frank, the whole stadium was singing Vinny, Vinny. <laughs> and it blindsided the geezer that was, that was trying to look at me ticket. So I said, come on, mate, I've got to go. Because the whole crowd was singing. So anyway, he let us run through. The old man sat there and I, and he had tears in his eyes. And I said, what's up with you? And he said, oh, you'll get to know it one day when you're with your son. He said, this is, I can't believe this, the old stadium singing your name. Uh, I went, yeah, yeah great, it. isn't it? <laughs> terrific. That's terrific, the old man. Terrific. Lovely. Talk to us about the switch into movies. Because 98, 99, you're coming to the end of your football career. You're calling time on things there. And then obviously uh, we see you playing Big Chris in Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels. So how did that all come to fruition? Well, what the idea was, I was going to QPR as an assistant player manager to Ray Harford. And Ray Harford was a great man. I had a lot of respect for Ray Harford. And he was the manager. He was going to do a year at QPR. And Chris Wright, the owner at the time, wanted me to take over and learn from Ray Harford, which was a fantastic idea. So I left Wimbledon, went to QPR as player manager. We kept him up. We needed seven points in six games or something like that. So... We stayed up. We signed Razor Ruddock on loan. So that was quite um, an interesting dressing room with me and him in it. I can remember we're at bottom three of the league and, and Razor decides that we're going to go to Cheltenham. So I'm like, I don't think it's a good idea, Razor. No, no, we've got to go. We've got to go. Anyway, we, went, we go to Cheltenham, me and him. The last thing I remember, it's about 11 o'clock at night. He's in a cab with me. We've missed our lift back to Watford so I said well come with me we'll get a cab so we got a cab from Cheltenham to Watford which was about 400 quid in them days which was like a fortune <laughs> I said right come on stay here and he said no 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 he said I've got I've got training in the morning he said give us a pillow he said I'll take the cab up to Liverpool <laughs> so I went in the house I got him a pillow and he went Liverpool please mate and the geezer's eyes lit up he, I don't think he worked for about three years after that the cab driver <laughs> Cheltenham to Watford to Liverpool. How about that for a fair? And Razor, Razor went straight to the training ground, I believe. Unbelievable. It couldn't happen now, could it? It doesn't happen now. None of those things happen now. It's changed totally, hasn't it? It's changed completely now. It has. It has. I can remember. I can remember. I went to Scotland to see Stevie Collins fight. And uh, we was all there. I was with his mum and all that. We all sitting there ringside up in Scotland. He's fighting this big Russian fella or something. And it, it's a bit of a breeze for him. And he had his kilt on and everything. And he's looking over. And he's up against the rings. And he's got the geezer against the rings. And he's pushing back. And he's giving the cup. And he's looking down. He's, he's sort of nodding at us, me and Roddy and his mum and that. Like, are you all right? You've got decent seats kind of thing. While he's in the fight. And all of a sudden, the big Russian goes bang and hits him straight on the chin. Rolls him over. Steve rolls over on his ass. The, all his tackle are flying out everywhere. He's got his kilt on. He's got up, like, shook his head. He thought, you cheeky bastard. And he's absolutely pummeled this geezer in a few seconds. That was the end of the fight. So, you know, we all, we all went back to the hotel after and then, like, 
so they always all the Collinses have a big sing song after. So they said, "Come on, yeah. Jonesy, you got to sing as a you got to sing as a song." I was there. He said, oh, we, well, I went in the dressing room after, and so Steve said, you and Tans, take Mammy back to the, ha- uh, back to the hotel. So you know, we came back. We had this great big sing-song. It was one of the best boxing nights I've ever had, really, I think. It was a great uh, track. The Irish really knew how to do it, you know. Yeah. And I had a great night. I saw something the other day where you was talking about little Josh Warrington, Frank. I don't know if yeah. you know, I took the belt out for him. Great lad, really good lad. I know he's with you for a bit, and then he's changed sides and and whatever. I don't really get too involved, but you know he's done really well. But I, I heard you say something about him going to America to fight and all that, and it's not that big of an attraction. But you know sometimes you know he is a massive attraction at Leeds, and I I, I kind of agreed with you that that's where he's got to do his boxing, hasn't he? Really? Yeah, I mean I like I like uh, Josh. He's done tremendously well, you know, and. Uh... We did well together. He made it happen. His ambition was to obviously fight for the world title and to make sure it happened at Leeds, which is what we did. So he was uh, he was very happy. And I understand he's going to get a unification fight there. So good luck to him. I hope he, he, I'm sure he'll win it. I'm sure he'll win it. He's, but for me, there's nothing better than home advantage. It's like you. Do you want to play at home or do you want to play away? Do you want to play in front of your home crowd or are you away fans? For me, it's a no-brainer. Unless there's huge money involved. When I was at Wimbledon, every game was like an an away game because we'd have about 3,000 supporters at home and the other team would have about 30. And I can say, and I can tell you so, being at Wimbledon, it weren't about the money, Frank. <laughs> Vinny, you were telling us there from going from QPR, obviously then into the movies. So how did that, how did that come about from being a player assistant manager at QPR then into Lockstock? How did it all work? Oh yeah, sorry, got sidetracked. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> anyway, just before I went to QPR, I got a phone call from, from the manager and he said there's two lads here they're doing this movie they want you to do a cameo role might be one or two days and I said yeah okay then I said I went down so the, I met the two boys at Stoke Poges golf club and what I didn't even know at the time we had coffees and all that they didn't they even have enough money to buy the coffees I had to buy the coffees and it was Guy Ritchie <laughs> and Matthew Vaughan <laughs> they said look we got this script here it's called Lock Stock and Two Smoking Barrels blah 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 and we've got you know, Ray Winstone and people like this. And I was like, bloody hell, fantastic. We want you to play this enforcer, Big Chris, and you just come in. We've got a couple of scenes. Um, and actually, the, the, the scenes were going to be with Ray Winston. It ended up with P.H. Moriarty because what happened, they couldn't get the money together to start the movie, so the mo- movie got pushed back. So when they finally got it, people like Ray Winston and all these big names that they said were all on other jobs. So we ended up with the B team, if you like. But saying that, you know, P.H. Moriarty and that were great actors. You know, I mean, P.H. was in Jaws and things like that and uh, The Long Good Friday. So he was a great actor. So, you know, that was a learning curve. But anyway, we're on set one day and this big fella comes in and he's going, Oh, give me, a, give me a cup of tea, darling. Fucking hell, who's this big fella? I was like, have a row with him. Anyway, he came over, and I got, I got big hands. Went to show, hello, son. And I went, hello, mate. He said, Lenny, Lenny McLean. What's it? And I went, fucking hell, he's got big hands. And made my hands, honestly, I got proper big hands. Proper big hands. And he made him look like a like a six month old baby. And I went like that, and, he, and we shook hands. And uh, he was—I tell you what—he was as funny as anything, you know. And I, 
He's you know, I've met Roy Shaw people like that, you know, um, but n- never had the same kind of character or charisma as Ke- uh, as Lenny. And people say, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, when he was younger, he was a bully and he was this. I found him to be absolutely fantastic. I mean, he was brilliant with all the crew, all the young kids. Like one one kid there, oh, make me a cup of tea. And they come back shaking with the tea, and they go, put that there. And they put the tea down, and they go, now give us a big cuddle. Give Uncle Lenny a cuddle. <laughs> and he'd give him a, you know, and, you, and, and, and it yeah, was that... a joy. And actually, I heard, you know, I heard you say earlier, Frank, about the movie we put in Love in Memory. But that actually was my idea. I've got to claim that one, because we were watching it. And I rung Guy and Matthew, and I said, you know, they said Lenny had passed away. And the thing about it was, we didn't know why we were filming, obviously. And the movie came out about a year after we finished. So he never saw the screening or anything. But his wife and family and that were there. And we all looked after him. And I said to Guy and Matthew, I said, you know what's missing here? I said, in loving memory of Lenny McLean. They went, oh, yeah, of course. So anyway, they put that on afterwards uh. before it went to theatres. So that is why that is on there. And I've actually just produced my own, my first ever movie, We've just done the same for my wife, Tanya. We put in exactly the same in loving memory of Tanya Jones on my movie. So, um, two wonderful people. So, anyway, I went in. I was at Wimbledon. Um, went in, done a couple. I said, all right, boys, I'll do it for you. Paid for the coffees at Stoke Poges, and off we went. <laughs> so, anyway, we did the movie. And in the meantime, we do, do the movie. I moved to QPR. The next thing, the movie's coming out. So, the good thing was there was a premiere. I kept asking them, is there a premiere? Yeah, we're going to have a big night out. And as you know, then next thing, it, it just took off. It went like, it went nuts. It went absolutely nuts. Yeah. And then from there, the next thing was, so we was all enjoying it, and it was good fun. And I, and I actually took Ray Arthur to the, uh, to the premiere, and we had a good time. And then the next thing, I was at home, and I got a phone call about half 11 at night. There's a bird at the end of the phone. She said, I have Mr. Jerry Brookheimer on the phone for you. Said, All right, let's <laughs> do. He said, we got a, he said uh, I, I want to meet you tomorrow at 12 o'clock. I'm doing a movie called Gone in 60 Seconds with Angelina Jolie and Nicolas Cage. And I've got wow. a great role that we got you in. We saw you in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. And we think you're incredible. And uh, I want to meet you t- tomorrow at 12 o'clock. I was like, yeah, where are you? I'm thinking he's going to say, you know, up in... Oxford Street somewhere. He said, Santa Monica. <laughs> I said, well, is this... <laughs> so I'm thinking, it's a wind-up now. Why has he got one of his uncles or someone to phone me up, taking this kind of thing? <laughs> so anyway, I, they said, no, we, we got you booked on British Airways tomorrow, 12 o'clock. So I thought, bollocks to it. So I jumped, I, I did, I got, I got hands to phone in, sick, jumped on the plane, flew over to Santa Monica, had the meeting, I'll cut a long story short here. One, like at the end of Snacks, where it goes, bang, don't go to England. Yeah. Anything to declare. So, literally jumped on the plane, landed in America, went to Santa Monica, had a 20-minute meeting, got the job, driving back to the Four Seasons Hotel where they were going to put me up. I said to the driver, do you think there's a flight going back to England? He called the office. Yeah, there's one at 10 to 10. Get me on it. Bang. Bang. Wallet. Car door shut. Get on a plane, and I flew home. I didn't even ask how much I was getting for the movie. Yeah, LA for a twenty-minute meeting and straight back on the plane. And you got the part, which is most important. 
Yeah, but it was so funny, Frank. I was at the airport. I phoned Tans and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got the part and all this. And it was a bit wonky at QPR. So it was all, there weren't no problems there. I could leave no problem. But anyway, I phoned Tans and I said, I've got the part. They've offered me it and, you know, this, that and the other. And she's like, oh my God, how much is it? And I went, I forgot to ask. Can you imagine Frank Warren? <laughs> <laughs> Frank Warren forgetting to ask how much for the fight. <laughs> yeah, you you sure that had never happened in a million years? <laughs> never. <laughs> never happened. Right. You said about you know with Tanya, that's obviously a, she's like the most important person in your life, and it's tragic what happened last year. And I know you've been campaigning about organ donation since. I mean, obviously, it's a real. That's probably about the toughest time I would think of yours and your family's life. Well, it still is. Every day is, Frank. Um, there are, yeah. Not one day gets better. You just kind of learn to live with it. You keep yourself busy. It, it's hard. You just want to spread the word. We're, I've been writing the book with um, with my daughter. We've been writing a memoirs book because she, Tanya left lots of um, diaries of when she was having her heart transplant um, and how she felt about having Kaylee um, and that connection. Um, so my my daughter and I have done that to to try and give people a bit of an insight, especially for me, for guys, to get an insight of how to deal with grief because um, it doesn't get no heavier than what's happened to us. I want to turn it into a positive. Like I try and turn everything I've ever done into a positive, and I'm trying to turn this into a positive and get and help other blokes um, because, as you know, you know. Blokes try and stick their head in the sand, you know, whether it's this prostate cancer thing, you know, to go and get checked up or whether it's, you know, dealing with grief, going to speak to somebody. Um, I think, you know, we've become kind of cavemen um, in our thinking. And I think yeah. blokes have got to liven up and, and definitely be more mature about it and say, look, I do need a bit of help here. If someone can talk to me and speak to me, then if it helps, it helps. If it doesn't, then yeah. so what? You haven't lost anything. So I want you the book to help people understand the grief. It won't get better very quickly. You learn to deal with it and you learn to be stronger with your family. I mean, I've become enormously, in eight months, enormously more protective over my daughter and closer to my daughter because she is, you know, she's wrapped around my, my wife, you know, wrapped around Tanya. Everything Tanya was came you know, my daughter came from her. So I want to try and express this in the book, which will probably come out in June or July. But, you know, that's that that's an important thing for me now to help to help fellas with this grief. You've also been talking quite a lot, Vinny, about um the the change in the law as well regarding organ donation, haven't you? You know what I mean? I mean the opt out thing rather than opt in is, is much better now for being able to save lives going further forward, of which Tanya benefited when she was twenty one years of age. Yeah, I mean how can you say to a mother with a say a six month old baby or a six year old baby or whatever it is uh actually you know we found we, we found a heart that will match which is which is you know i had a friend of mine five six years he was waiting for a heart when they finally found it it was too late the organs weren't up to matching up to taking the heart transplant this is the other thing i mean tanya looked so good because they got the heart, they, they, they transplanted pretty quick so that the other organs hadn't broken down so much. Now, can you imagine having a baby saying, you know, we need a, 
heart, lung or kidney, whatever it is, yeah, we have got one, but they're not down to, to donate. You know, because we can all remember yeah. those little uh, little cards that you had to sign and carry in your wallet. Well, you know, yeah. that, that wasn't good enough. And, uh, you know, I, I genuinely believe that most people... You know, if if they if they had a choice and say, oh, hold on a minute, do you want to donate? You know, I mean, or the family. You know, I know I know it sounds harsh for the family to say we want to take a bit of your child or your dad or your mum or your sister and put into somebody else to give them life. It's very hard. But can you imagine that other family that gets that heart? You know, and it's not. You can't compare it to winning the lottery and things like that. It's absolutely absurd. This is a gift of life. And you, with mm. me, it wasn't just saving Tanya, Tanya's life. It saved my life. It saved her daughter's life, Kaylee. It saved her mum's life. It saved her dad's life. It saved her brother's life. So, you know, the, the life goes on through this donation from one person's life ending. One person's life ends and multiple people's lives continue. That's where I'm coming from. Now, people will say, we'll agree, they'll disagree. That's up to them. But that's where I stand. That is where I stand. And I, and I, have, and I am living proof of it. Whilst you were in the UK recently, I saw, I, I saw you speaking about it quite passionately as well. And I think you mentioned like what, when Tanya had her heart transplant, if you got five years out of it, fantastic. If you got 10 years out of it, fantastic. But you ended up uh, getting 32 years. I know she's no longer with us, but like you say, that is just... Uh, the, the 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 advocate I suppose of what you're talking about right now. Look, you know, when we lost hands, that you know, when they when they when they get you in the room, the 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 room that you never even want to look at because you see people going in there and they're coming out trying their eyes that you never want to look there. And and six years later, I found myself in that room. If you you know, and they they said we don't know whether it's days, weeks, or months. You know. They kind of do, but they want to make it a little bit easier for you. But if you're, what I'm trying to say is, if you're waiting for a heart transplant or kidneys or lung or whatever it is, and you know, you're right there at the pearly gates, and you, and you're saying, please give us a donor, um, you know, just give us, just give us one more week with her, give us one more year. We got donated a heart. And it wasn't the heart that gave up. It was the cancer due to the medicine for taking the heart. The heart was very, very strong. 32 years old, the heart was, you know, and very, very strong. So when you, what I was trying to say was, if you're, if you're at the pearly gates, please give us one more day, one more year. We got 32 more years out of it. And I think hands accomplished everything. We literally this week, um, what, the biggest thing, the, the next milestone for Tans was for Kaylee and our daughter and, and her partner to have their own place. And I've literally done it this week. We got the keys. We wow. got the keys last Friday. So we completed the journey for her. You know, Brilliant. we completed her journey. And these are the things you have to do in grief. You have to complete uh, last wishes um, and things. So... You, so when you go, when we go up to Forest Lawn, up to the grave, and we can sit there and talk to her, we got things to talk about, and it makes the grief lighter that day. That's that's the word. It, you make it's how can we make grief lighter? You, you can't make it go away. 
You can't. You just how can you make it lighter that day? And that's what we do. So we've made it lighter. This week, my daughter and her partner and me, we're, we're, we're floating. We're floating because we've accomplished something for, for Tanya. There was a bloke at the golf course, and I was in there just getting washed up. And he said, um, I'm sorry about your wife. I said, yeah, thank you. Okay. And he said, I lost my wife 14 years ago. I said, oh, I'm very sorry. Anyway, I washed up, washed my hands, just walking out. He said, hey, Vin. He said, it, it doesn't get no easier. You have to learn how to live with it, mate. And that was like a hammer hitting me on top of the head, Frank. You know, and he is so yeah. true. As, as these days and weeks and months go by, they do drag by. And they do drag by. And you realize that it is a fight and it is a battle. But I've been in a lot of battles in my time. This one's tough. Um, but I saw a video. There's a video of a Marine talking to the, all, all the Marines coming through. And he talks about, you know, being a Marine and how you deal with day-to-day -day stuff. And he said, the best way to start your day is to make your bed in the morning. Because it doesn't matter how shitty that day was you can come back to a ready-made bed and you can get in and you can start again. And that's what I do. The first thing I do is, is make me bed and I'll have a chat with her and I'll, and I'll, and I'll have a few words with her and everything else. And it's not me going nuts. It's me making the grief easier for that day. So I make my bed every day and start from there, Frank, and, and see what comes each day. And as I say, you know, I mean, we're eight months into it. We've been doing the book, which has really helped. The author, um, Luke Dempsey, has, has written the book with us and ghostwritten it for, for me and Tanya. Her mum's done some stuff, her dad and brother. So it's, it's memoirs about this fantastic girl, you know, who came on this planet and enlightened everybody's life. Everybody she touched enlightened. And we want to carry that story on. And, and if it helps, we always said, you know, we'd want to do it to help Harefield Hospital and to help the NHS. They've done a wonderful job with my wife and, I, and, and I'm so forever in their debt. What would uh, Tanya thought of uh, you having a go at the old X Factor? Well, that was Tanya's wish, to be honest, mate. She, <laughs> we got that information beforehand. Um, obviously, it wasn't the right time or anything. It came and she said, you must do it. You'd be great and people would get to know you and you'd enjoy it. You'd sing all your old songs because, you know, I love all that old 80s stuff, you know, the, you know, the clash and the sex pistols and the madness and all that. So anyway, but what, I mean, I haven't, a lot of people don't know this. The, the main thing I got out of the whole thing, I actually went and done a live performance with madness after that with Suggsy and the boys. Um, wow. I've been clapping. Uh, yeah, so that was that was that was fantastic. I really got something out of it. But Tanya really wanted me to do that. She encouraged me to do it. And and what I did was they've got a massive Irish connection, obviously with her with her grandparents and her mum and dad. And she's half half Irish. So we used to sing this fantastic song called the Galway Shore, which we used to sing on the way down. We've got a house in Palm Springs where I am now. And we used to drive yeah. down a couple of hours drive from Los Angeles, and we used to have it on replay. And there was no music, no nothing. It was just me and the microphone. And I, and I think I'd done a great job. And, it, you know, it brought everybody to tears. And, and it was just me remembering Tans at that moment um, over them six or seven weeks. And I must say, I found Simon Cowell to be absolutely honourable gentleman. And he helped me through that in a lot of ways. You know, I had a couple of phone calls with him and I had various meetings with him one-on-one. -on -one. And the man helped me out tremendously through that period. Oh, that's nice.
the, the book's going to be a great testimonial to, to her and to, to, and to you and the yeah. family. I mean, you know, I'm sure a lot of people will be looking forward to, to, to reading it. And wish you well with that. Yeah, no, I hope it'll help people. I hope it'll help people in grief and how to carry on. You know, you you make the bed every day. That's the that's the best. You you need a starting point of each day, and if you make the bed, you can go from there, Frank, and then uh, straight to the coffee maker. That's that, that's what you got to do. Vinnie Jones, episode six of the Frank Warren Heavyweight Podcast in the can. How good was that? Hopefully you enjoyed it. And if you did, please head to iTunes, uh, give us a five-star review and write a few comments on there as well because it helps with our visibility in the iTunes charts. Always good for more people to be able to see what we're doing. We've got more coming your way over the next couple of weeks. So make sure you hit the subscribe button. You can do it via Aircast as well if you need an Android feed. We'll catch you next time.